Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah, from Paul read earlier for us this morning, 63. Isaiah has 66 books, so we're getting pretty close to um, wrapping up the book of Isaiah. I've entitled morning's message, The Order of the Day of the Lord. And so it's sort of a chronology of the events that are going to lead up to these first four verses from Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Eden, who's dyed garments from Basra, the one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garment like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger, I have trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all of my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. As we look at these scriptures, it pertains to... um, a future event where God is going to judge a Christ-rejecting world. Interesting that this week, actually it was on Wednesday, that on May 14th, 68 years ago, David Ben-Gurion got up and declared Israel a state. They were immediately attacked by their enemies, and against all odds, they survived. It says they will never be driven out of the land again. So, The significance of the rebirth of the nation of Israel, Jesus spoke about it in Matthew chapter 24, what would happen when they come back the second time. I'm going to have you turn here to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is called the Olivet Discourse, and it begins with chapter 24 verse 1, and it ends with 25 verse 46. The reason I know that is if you read the very first verse of chapter 26, it says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all of these sayings. So he has just finished something, and that is chapter 24 and chapter 25. And in it, if you look at verse 32, there's three parables in the Olivet Discord. There's a parable of the fig tree, and chapter 25, the parable of the ten virgins, and then the parable of the talents. Now, Pastor Chuck actually made a movie out of this parable called The Parable of the Fig Tree in verse 32. He premised it with these verses, and he tied it into the rebirth of the nation of Israel. So when we read about the fig tree here blossoming, what we have in mind is Israel being regathered. The question disciples ask, what's it going to be like near the end? And one of the major signs, and one that has to come to pass, is the existence of the nation of Israel. Well, it was just 68 years old this last Wednesday. In verse 32, it says, Now learn the parable from the fig tree, when its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Well, isn't it the same here? Isn't every Mother's Day, uh, this is the week where all the leaves pop out, Right? And so we know that summer's here. The other reason we know that summer is here is the lake flies have arrived (laughs) in numbers. I I told the story in the first service, I'll I'll tell it again in a second. I grew up in Oshkosh, and 
My dad was a prankster, and he, he took out a full-page ad in Oshkosh Northwestern, and it was during the lake fly season. And in the ad it says, lake flies, a problem? And then he put his best friend's phone number underneath it. <laughs> his phone rang for lake fly season for the next two weeks. Guy got him back, though. He, he took a, um, a dump truck load of three-quarter-inch gravel and dumped it right in our driveway. <laughs> So it was payback time. That's stuff what back and forth, they were both pranksters. All that to say this, we know that it was cold last night, and, but it's going to be the end of the, it's going to be 70s by the next week, uh, end of this week. So what we can say, we, we identify that summer's near when you see a tree bud. Uh, so also, now he's making the comparison. So when you see all these things, Know that it is near, even at the very door. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will in no means pass away. The parable, the fig tree is always an emblem of the nation of Israel. And basically, it's saying when you see it blossom, first of all, it's got to be rebirthed, it's got to come again. And like I said, since 70 AD, there was no Israel. I could really get sidetracked here. A lot of theology in mainline Protestant and Roman Catholicism, they have a problem with the literal interpretation of the book of Revelation. But imagine being a Bible teacher in 300 AD, and Israel has already been out of the land since 70 AD, And much of the book of Revelation is about Israel. And so there was no Israel. Even up to over 100 years ago, people still didn't get it. But there was always a handful of people that said, even though we don't understand this right now, if God says there's going to be an Israel, there's going to be an Israel. And guess what? There was a softening of the heart after World War II. A little window where the UN and Russia and the US agreed that Israel needs a homeland. And so... God's word came to pass, and we, we see the fig tree blossoming. But I remember when they began to develop it, it was developed by families that would live communally, and they, we call them kibbutzes, and uh, that's how they survived. They had nothing but wilderness and swamp, and so these kibbutniks, that's what they called them, uh, drained the swamps, planted certain trees that would uh, dry out the land, And then they began to cultivate it. And this is really fulfilling Ezekiel's prophecy, Ezekiel 38, that talks about this event. And I'm quoting verse 34 of Ezekiel 36. The desolate land will be tilled instead of being desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say the land that was desolate will become like the Garden of Eden. And the wasted, desolate, and and ruined cities are now fortified and are even inhabited. Then the nations which are left from all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places, planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. And he has done it. Somebody want to say amen? Israel exists today. But it says, like the Garden of Eden, Israel is the fourth largest producer of fruit in the world. It sends flowers to Holland in the wintertime. 
They're second only to the United States in computer technology. The fig tree has indeed blossomed. And this was a prophecy from Isaiah 11. talks about the second regathering. Um, We know that the first regathering was the book of Daniel, the seven years that they were in captivity, and then they came back. They were gone for 70 years, then they came back. That was the first one. But Isaiah 11 said it'll come to pass that the Lord will set his hand again the second time and to recover the remnant of the people who are left. Now, that's what happened. When he brought them back, he says, you'll bring them back from Cush, from Egypt, from Elam, from Sinar, from, from the farthest islands of the sea. And he will establish them once again, and that is what we see has happened. And indeed, it has to happen, gang, because God owes Israel seven years that is still unaccounted for from uh, Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, God said he was going to work with Israel for 77s, or 490 years, and he would accomplish so much. And he said it would be exactly 490. Well, after 483, or 69 weeks, the Messiah came. And it says that when he comes, he will be executed, but not for himself. Well, that was fulfilled. So we can say 69 of the 70 fulfilled prophecy. But there's still Daniel 9, verse 27, which says that he will make a covenant. The Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel for a seven-year period of time. And then it says in the middle of that seven-year period of time, uh, he will break the covenant. And we'll read a little bit more about that when we get into when I take you to Daniel. Also, if we are living in the generation, the question is, well, how long is a generation? 40 years, 60 years, 70 years, 100 years? I believe what this parable is speaking to us about is I was born in 51, so Israel would have been in existence for three years when I was three. I believe it's just simply saying that if you're alive during that generation, you will see the fulfillment of all these things, and they must come to pass. All prophecies pertaining to this, and then to sort of stamp it even, this will take place. He said, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but by no means will my word pass away. So this is going to happen. Israel is here, even though for hundreds of years nobody bought it because it simply wasn't there. It was just a wasteland. Now, in the order of events that I see taking place, Israel has to be in the land first. But if you go into the next event here, if you look at verse 36, it begins with, but of that day and hour no one knows, no, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, this cannot be a reference to the first coming of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Daniel 9 tells us to the very day the Messiah would come. When you read Daniel chapter 12, it tells you to the day Jesus will come the second time. So I know the day of the first coming. If you are unfortunate, not saved, and you're living in the tribulation, uh, Daniel 12 says, when you see the abomination of desolation, start counting. Because it's going to be 1,290 days, second coming. So what do we have here? No one knows the, the day. 
It could only be the rapture. Dave Hunt gave a brilliant Bible study at the um, uh, pre-trib conference that's been going on in Dallas for over 20 years now. And I remember when Dave was still alive, he, he taught the rapture out of these verses that I'm about to read. And in verse 36, no one knows the day of the hour, only my father. This is a reference to the rapture. But this is what it's going to be like. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the kind of coming of the Son of Man be. Well, what were the days of Noah like? Men only thought evil things continually. And then it says in the next verse, then they were making transgender bathrooms and showers, and you could go into the girls' bathroom if you want to, or if you want to go into the boys' bathroom. Oh, no, that's not there. But it is the days of Noah, because men's thoughts were only evil continually. And we can't believe how quickly we see the days of Noah unfolding. But it goes on to say, and this is one of the ways we know that it's not about the second coming, because it's going to be everyday life. It says, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And every, what it's saying here is, is uh, you won't be expecting it. It'll be everyday life. Well, it's certainly not the second coming, because Jesus says in his same chapter that things are going to be so bad, unless I return, no flesh is going to be saved. These verses here are talking about everyday life. In other words, it's going to catch you just, just like that. You may not be expecting it, and the Lord will come. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be working in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Here's a husband who's saved. Here's a wife who's not. The rapture happens. The husband who's saved goes to heaven. And one who wasn't saved is left behind. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other one left. So what are we to do? Watch. Watch, therefore, because you don't know what hour is to come. You know, the Bible says he who has this hope, what hope? The hope of the rapture, purifies himself even as he is pure. If we really take that admonishment to heart and we think, hey, you know, the Lord could come today. Israel's been around for 68 years. It's got to happen in that time frame. Then, aren't we watching our P's and Q's? There's this natural purifying effect because we want to be ready when the Lord comes. Good place for an amen. We want to be ready. So he says, watch therefore, because you don't know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that the master of the house would have known what hour the thief would have come. He would have watched and not allowed the house to be broken into. Therefore, be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, having said that, we may not know the day or the hour, but 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. There's going to be certain signposts out there that tells us we're living in the time when the rapture is imminent. And we, it goes on to say, that we should know the times and the seasons, not the day or the hour, but the times and the season, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is a reference to the tribulation. Something's going to happen to trigger the great tribulation period, and it's going to happen quickly. 
when they're saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. As labor pains upon a pregnant woman, they will not escape. But you, brethren, now we're talking to the church, you're not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. As born-again, Bible-believing Christians, we should understand the times and the seasons. We should realize the significance of the rebirth of the nation of Israel. It's never happened before. Every culture, every ethnic group that has ever been conquered by another country, they're assimilated into that society. There are no more Philistines. There are no more Hittites. Well, what happened to them? Well, they assimilated into the culture. One exception, Israel. They were dispersed into the whole world. And they've maintained an identity so that when the Lord opened the door for them to go back, there were Jews. And that kept their traditions. They're the only one in history of any ethnic group that has ever had that happen to them. So talk about a sign. And then it says in verse 9, for God has not appointed us to wrath, but obtained salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about the tribulation and that we're not in darkness. We should be aware of it. But he also says that this is a time of God's wrath for people who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now he's going to have a seven-year period of time where he brings judgment. Revelation 6, verse 17 said, is the wrath of the Lamb. And God has not appointed us, verse 9, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We speak about this, but when you really allow it to, to settle in and you believe it, could you imagine for a second the utter chaos that will follow the event that we refer to as the rapture, where we literally have millions of people here one second and gone the next, along with all the kids from the planet. And it'll, it'll be such a shock that the world will be, for- Dave Hunt has always said this, what, what triggers the tribulation in a one world religion, a one world government, and a one world currency? The rapture. What, you know, we've been preconditioned to a lie, and I'll take you to that in a second. But the world is gonna experience something on a global level that has never happened before. Oh, it's happened before. And if you go to Genesis chapter five, we read about this guy whose name was Enoch. It says he walked with God. He lived for 365 years and the Lord took him. Just like that, he raptured him. So it has happened before, but not on a global scale. And when that happens, and this is where I want you to turn now to Second Thessalonians chapter two. We're sort of building a club sandwich with the order of events. And the first, you know, the church of Thessalonica, got they were confused. Paul had laid out the chronology, things that would lead up to the great tribulation period. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, he talks about the rapture. And uh, he explained it, and he left for a while. But in the meantime, somebody had written a letter or got up and gave a prophecy. And they said, the things that Paul talked about is not true. And uh, they changed the, the teachings of Paul. So in chapter two, verse two, the first thing that we read, now concerning, now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So that's the rapture. 
back from 1 Thessalonians 4. I don't want you to be so, I don't want you to be shaken up in mind or troubled either by spirit or word or by letter. Why did he say that? Because they were shook up. Somebody either by a word of knowledge, a letter, or began to teach things contrary to what Paul taught them. Now he's got to write Second Thessalonians, and he says, all right, I'm going to go through it again. So he says, as though the day of Christ had come. Now, verse 3, he says, don't let anybody deceive you, because obviously somebody was trying to, by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. Okay, two things here. And the first thing I want to tell you is I'm not going to be dogmatic because I believe they're both true. But I want to draw your attention to the falling away, that word. It's the Greek word apostasia. The two people I respect the most in the study of Greek and Hebrew on the study of eschatology, that would be the study of last day things, is Dr. Tabi Ice, who's a good friend of ours for many years, and Dr. Arnold Fruchenbaum, both from Dallas Theological Seminary, and they're, both of them are brilliant people. I'm, I'm going to quote Tommy here on Second Thessalonians, the word for falling away. He says, I believe that there's a strong possibility that Second Thessalonians 2.3 is speaking of the rapture. What do I mean? Well, some pre-tribulationists, like myself, think that the Greek word noun, apostasia, usually translated apostasy, is a reference to the rapture and should be translated departure. Thus, this passage would be saying that the day of the Lord will not come until the rapture comes before it. If apostasia is a reference to a physical departure, then 2 Thessalonians 2.3 is strong evidence for pre-tribulationalism. Now, the meaning of the Greek word apostasia. The Greek noun apostasia is only used twice in the New Testament, in addition to 2 Thessalonians 2.3. It also occurs in Acts 21.21, where speaking of Paul, it is said... You are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake, that's the word apostasia, Moses. The word is a Greek compound of apeo from the form and esthema, stand. Thus, it has a core meaning of away from or departure. The Lindell and Scott Greek lexicon defines apostasia first as a defection, revolt, and then secondly, as a departure or a disappearance. Gordon Lewis explains how the verb from which the noun apostasia is derived supports the basic meaning of departure in the following. So there's strong, in the language, in the Greek language, what we term as apostasy, which is also false doctrine, uh, that has to come. Didn't Jesus warn about that in Matthew 24? Four times. He says there's going to be false teachers and false Christs in the last days and unsound doctrine. So I'm not dogmatic with what, what Tommy is saying here because I see both of them as being viable. Uh, we're definitely seeing a departure from solid Bible teaching, but this, there's a strong argument here that Tommy makes that what we indeed have in view 
And I'll read it again, verse three. Let no one deceive you. Here's the order by any means. And I'm gonna put in Tommy's apostasia here. For the rapture will come first and then the man of sin revealed. Now, this lines up and is consistent when you study the book of Revelation. Chapters one, two, and three is to the seven churches. In four and five, the church is in heaven singing a new song. We've been redeemed from every tribe, tongue, and nation upon the earth. It's a new song that they're singing. Where's the church? In heaven. Then you have Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. What's that all about? Well, you have Jesus opening the seal, and here's a rider on a white horse who goes out to conquer, and he's conquering. It's a picture of the Antichrist. But again, the order, rapture first, Antichrist second. Let me continue to read on. He defines this man of sin called the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God so that he's worshipped as he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Now this reference right here means that there will be a temple someday in Israel. Um, And then he says, guys, don't you remember that when I was still with you I told you these things? So he's rehashing this. Somebody started some rumor and, and um, caused them to be worried. And he says, all right, let me go through it again. Don't you remember when I was with you? I told you these things. And then he says, and now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, a restrainer, will do so until he is taken out of the way. Who and what is a restrainer? Well, the church is supposed to be the salt and the light of the world. Amen? And the restraining force, with with all the garbage and the legislation that's, that's going on currently, we still have people in office that are godly people that are still fighting against it, restraining it. Well, until it's taken out of the way, Now, the Holy Spirit lives inside born-again believers. The rapture takes place. The restraining force is removed. Then what? Verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. I like reading that verse. Because it tells us he's he's not going to pull off what he wants to. He's going to come, yeah. But the Lord's going to destroy him, and he's not going to accomplish The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. What's the love of the truth? The gospel of Jesus Christ, that God loves you, that he died on a cross for you, and you could have your sins forgiven, and you could have your name put in the book of life, and you could have everlasting life. And that is the truth, and it's the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Well, people will say, no, I don't want nothing to do with that. They didn't receive the love of the truth. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they would believe, notice, the lie, a single lie. What is the lie? Well, it's going to have to be something in the form of some explanation of what just happened to all these millions of people. And he's going to have an answer for it. And I think we've been preconditioned to this event for many, many years. I was watching a program just this last week. 
about uh, the Sphinx in, in, uh, in Egypt and what, what it looked like. And it was probably put there long before by a higher species, aliens. And we've been preconditioned with this for how many years? I mean, beam me up, Scotty. And we've, we've, we've seen programs where they're just, you know, they're just taken up. And I think the lie is going to be simple as simple as this. We put you here. Uh, you're, you're a species that, uh, unfortunately, there's some of you that don't want world peace, global warming. This goes on, right? And if you're not in favor of those things, then eventually you simply have to be gotten rid of. And that's whatever the lie is. I think it's going to be some along those lines. Verse 12 that they might be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. When this event happens, and we need to um, turn now to Daniel chapter 9. Here, here the order is given. What do we have so far? Well, we have Israel being regathered. That has to be in place. Someday after that, the Lord will take out his church. Some will be left behind. Some will be taken. And then Paul had to write a second letter to the Thessalonians because somebody was teaching false doctrine, so he had to go back and say, don't you remember? We've been through this, guys. Then in Daniel chapter 9, we still have this seven-year period of time that has not yet been fulfilled. And if you look at verse 27... When this event happens, I believe immediately there will be a man of peace. He'll, he'll be the man with the plan. There will be a one world religion because there's people who call themselves Christians today that are not born again Christians. Somebody want to say amen to that? They think they are. Well, I was born in America. I must be a Christian. I'm not a communist. When the rapture happens, they're left behind, but they're left behind. Oh, I thought I was a Christian. Well, it will create a one-world religion that Rome, uh, Revelation 17 says happens to be headquartered in Rome. little sidetrack here. I've never seen anything like it in my 40 years of ministry. Solid Bible-believing churches joining hands with people and ecumenical movements that is on the fast track to Rome. The Anglican church has gone back to Rome. And we, we see people lowering their doctrinal standards so that there can be unity with one another. Now, I have no problems fellowshipping with, with uh, somebody that knows and loves the Lord and may not have the exactly same doctrine as I do on some areas. I'll fellowship with them. I'll love them as a brother. But you think I'm going to let them stand behind this pulpit? No way. Ain't going to happen. Because there's just certain things that we won't compromise on. But there will be those that are simply not saved. They'll be left behind. And so we have a one-world government, a one-world religion, a one-world currency. Mary's working on a news bite right now. It's called Bitcoins. It's the latest thing. It's instantaneous transactions financially. And there's no middleman at all. I'm saying the technology exists for the mark of the beast to be put into place just like that. So if you look at verse 27 of Daniel 9, it says that he, as referred to the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for one week. 
but in the middle of the week he will bring an end to the sacrifice and offerings. Well, in order to have this, you have to have Israel actually wanting their Messiah to come because if the Messiah comes, then they can build their temple, okay? And this was part of our news bites last Wednesday. This is a highly respected rabbi, and his message is simple. The Messiah's return is imminent, and that's his words. The Messiah's return is imminent. So what are they looking for? They are primed right now for somebody to come along that will give them permission to build their temple. And that's how they will know that he's the Messiah. Now, if we read verse 27 again, he will confirm a covenant. Isn't that what we've been trying to do since every president, as far back as I remember, take him to Camp David and let's see if we can't have a peace deal with Israel? Nobody's pulled it off. This guy will. And he will sign a peace treaty. And it'll be a covenant for one week. And now, the clock stopped in 70 A.D., with, with, um, with Israel, 483 of those years are fulfilled and there's still seven years missing. Well, that's yet future, but these rabbis are saying it's imminent. Some are talking about uh, the Shemitah this, this October, and I'm not going to go any farther than that except there is a, this expectation of that we're going to get our temple back. And then it goes on to say, who will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. In other words, he doesn't keep the deal. He keeps it for three and a half years. And on the wings of abomination shall be one who is made desolate, even until the consummation which is determined. So here we have one seven-year period of time that Jesus talked about. In Matthew 24, the disciples said, Lord, what's the end going to be like? Tell us about it. He says, okay. When you see the abomination of desolation, future, spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, in parentheses, whoever reads, let him understand. When that happens, then you head for the hills. Those who are in Judea, flee, run to the mountains. And let him who's on the housetop, don't go into your house to take anything out. Let him who's in the field, don't go back for his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant. Why? Because it's hard to travel and run when you're pregnant. Jesus says there will be great tribulation after this event where the Antichrist breaks the deal and now he goes into the temple. We just read it in 2 Thessalonians. And he says, I'm God. Worship me or you die. It's that easy. Such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time nor ever shall be. And Jesus said, unless those days were short, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days would be shortened. Where do they flee to? That's the question. I got up this morning, and I have my devos, and I go over my notes for Sunday, but I also go online, and I read Barry Siegel's. He's an Israeli. He has a TV program. His main ministry is to provide clothing for immigrants that are Jewish that come into Israel. That's basically his ministry. But this is as fresh as this morning, what I'm about to tell you, because the relation between Jordan and Israel hasn't been that good. But here's the headline. He said, a quiet alliance, Jordanian and Israel cooperation is on the rise. Despite the fact that much of the Jordanian population sees Israel as an enemy, 
cooperation and people-to-people relationships are quietly, slowly growing. Now, why would that be significant? Jordan, and now the question, if Jesus says, head for the hills and run, my question is, where do they run to? You guys want to know? Then turn to Isaiah chapter 16. Remember, we're building this club sandwich. We have Israel being regathered. We have the rapture of the church. We have the Antichrist being revealed. We have the abomination of desolation taking place. Clear instructions, just run for your life. Don't go back for anything. Isaiah 16 tells us where they flee to. Verse one, it says, send the lamb to the rulers of the land from Selah to the wilderness. Now Selah is Petra. Petra is in Jordan. To the mount of the daughters of Zion, for it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest, so shall the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. It says, take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcast. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab, Jordan. Be a shelter to them from the face of who? The spoiler, which is another name for the Antichrist. For the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. Here we're told when Jesus says run, he asks Jordan to be a place of refuge to protect them from the spoiler, the outcasts. They're running. Where, where are they going to run to? Petra. I've been to Petra maybe four or five, six times. It's an unbelievable fortress, and everything is carved out of solid rock. And all the dwellings are carved out of this type of limestone. It was such a big city that it had its own amphitheater. This is where we do our Bible study when we get there. And this is the place that they will go to according to Isaiah 16. Protect them. My outcasts. The spoiler is after them. Protect them. And it tells us that they go to this place called Petra and Moab and Basra. All right. We have a picture of this in Revelation 12 with more details being added And I won't have you turn here, but just let me explain. From this point here, right in again in the middle of the tribulation, Revelation 12, 12, I'm quoting right now, it says there's a war in heaven. Boy, I'd like to see that one. Michael and his angel fights against the devil and his angels. Angel wars. And it says Michael and his angels prevailed, and Satan and his angels were cast out. Now I'll pick it up there. It says, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth and sea. Why? For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. I'll explain how much time in just a second. And when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, who is Israel, who gave birth to the male child, which is Jesus. But the woman who was given two wings of a great eagle, that could be symbolic of a plane, that she might fly into the wilderness to a place where she is nourished for a time, singular, times plural, now you got three, and half a time. 
from the presence of the serpent. So we have the people that are running that Jesus told to run. We know where they run to. And we know that the devil is after them. Um, But we're also told that the serpent came and spewed out water like a flood after the woman. Could be an army. That he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Could be an army. Could be a literal flood. Has the earth ever opened up before and protected Israelites? Oh yeah, remember Korah? Moses, who do you think you are? You know, a big shot, you're the only guy around here calling the shots. And he rebelled against Moses. And the Lord said, okay, what do you, Moses said, what do you want me to do, Lord? He says, have everybody that's with you on the side and everybody who's with Korah on that side and I'll take care of things. And as soon as everybody was on Korah's side, earth opens, Korah's swallowed up, end of problem. It's happened before. So is it literal? Don't know. All I know is that there's a real antichrist who is doing everything in his power to wipe out this remnant. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. You see, everybody doesn't get out of town who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. What I'm about to say is very, very difficult for me to say because I've been to Auschwitz several times. I've been to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum, many times. And I would never think that anything could be worse than that. But Jesus said in the tribulation it's going to be worse than that, like a time that never was, right? Or a time that'll ever be? Well... Zechariah tells us that, okay, the devil can't get to the remnant because God's protecting them. So he takes off and goes back and he gets who he can. Zechariah tells us the percentages. I'm reading from Zechariah 13. It will come to pass in the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds will be cut off and die. And one-third will be left. In other words, one-third made it to Petra and the enemy comes back and he destroys two-thirds. I will bring the one-third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined. I will test them as gold is tested, and they will call on my name. Now, I want you to think about this. Here we have Jesus saying when he left the Jews for the last time when he was here, he says, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who calls on the name of the Lord. They have never done that. So what does God do? He takes a remnant, sticks them in a place like Petra, and uh, it's, they're being refined. They're being broken down. And they finally, as gold is tested, and then it says, and they call on my name. You know what that name is? Yeshua. And they call on Jesus. And, um, and I will answer them. So at the end of this times, times, and half a time, three and a half years, they say, Lord, save us. And guess who shows up? And we have the second coming of Jesus Christ. And um, they call on the Lord in Petra. It's also known as Basra. Go to Revelation chapter 14 as we continue to build this sandwich this morning. Revelation 14, picking it up in verse 14. John says, and I looked, and behold, a white cloud, 
And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. It is the Son of Man, it's Jesus. Having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. Another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried out with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp uh, uh, sickle and gather the cluster of the vines of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And so the angel thrust in the circle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and the blood came up out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle, 1,600 furlongs. It's been foretold as far back as Psalm 2. You know, you can't even get past Psalm 2 without talking about the Battle of Armageddon. I'll just read the first five verses. Why do the nations rage, and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces. We don't want him ruling over us. And we're going to cast away his cords from us. But he who sits in heaven will laugh, and the Lord will hold them in derision. Is there anything more crazy than a mortal who's going to fight against the ancient of days? the one who has no beginning and no end. It was evidently funny to the Lord, and it's ludicrous that any human being is going to fight against God. Good place for an amen. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? But he who sits in heaven will laugh and hold him in derision, and then he's going to speak to him in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And when this happens, when this event happens, it says that the the judgment is going to be so great that it will be for 1,000, blood will come up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs. At the top of this map here, this is Israel, um, Megiddo is where we have our first view when we go there, and we show the valley of Armageddon. And if you draw a line and go to Petra or Basra, it is exactly, and I mean exactly, 1,600 furlongs, and they debate 167 to 180 miles, but that's where this battle takes place. Now, that was all introduction. Uh, Now we can get to our Bible study and go to our text. I'm just kidding. We're almost done, but let's go back to our text, and now it's going to make a whole lot more sense, because what we've done is that it answers our text. We're just teaching through the Bible. We happen to be in Isaiah chapter 63, right? So, who is this who comes from Eden? And who dyed his garments in Basra? Well, now we know where that is. It's Petra. This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have tread in the winepress alone. Remember, it was thrown into the wrath of God. And from the people, no one was with me. I have trodden them in my anger. I have trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. 
For the day of vengeance, or the day of the Lord, is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Why did he come? Because Israel finally said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, we're sorry. We didn't know it was you. And all along, it was you. And when they finally call upon the Lord, he shows up as their Messiah. There's detail. There's just four verses here, but the real event as it unfolds is in Revelation 19. So let's turn there, and we'll be about done. Picking it up with verse 11. This is the battle of Armageddon itself. And we read verse 11 of 19, and I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written which no one knew except he himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, out of his mouth was a sharp sword, and with it he would strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, of captains, of mighty men, of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great." So we have the order. We have Israel being regathered. We have the Lord taking the church out. We have the Antichrist signing an agreement with Israel. He breaks it, goes into the temple, declares himself to be God. The Lord says, when you see it happen, run. Run where? Run to Basra. Run to Jordan. Run to Petra. A third of you are going to make it. And then after you're refined, you're going to call on me, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to take care of business. And when he does come, it fulfills, because when he leaves Basra, he goes from Basra, the next place that he goes to is the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. I'm quoting Acts chapter 1 right now. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven from the Mount of Olives, and he says, while they were there, the disciples were there watching the Lord being taken up. And a couple of angels were there. He says, hey, you guys from Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from into heaven will so come in like manner just as you saw him go. In other words, he's going to come back to the very place that he left. Now I'm quoting Zechariah chapter 14, which is a prophecy It says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city will be taken, the houses rifled, the women 
will be ravished. Half of the city will go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth, and he will fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives is going to split in two from east to west. There's a hotel called the Intercontinental Hotel that's on the Mount of Olives. Before they built it, they did a geological survey, and they discovered a major fault running through the Mount of Olives. And someday, that fault is going to split. And all it takes is the Lord Jesus Christ's foot to land on that Mount of Olives. And just like the angel said in Acts 1, he comes back to Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from the east to the west. And we just finish the seven-year tribulation period. And it says that Jerusalem is going to rise up at this time. Oh, there's some sorting out that has to be done because there's people that are still alive who made it through the tribulation. Some of them took the mark of the beast and some of them didn't. So in Matthew 25, we have this 45-day period of time where Jesus says he separates the sheep from the goats. And Daniel 12 tells us that if you make it to the 1,335th day, uh, you're blessed. Well, why are you blessed? Because you now get to go into the kingdom that much of the book of Isaiah talks about. And um, the goats, they will go into everlasting punishment, but those who are saved on the right hand will enter in and, and they will be a part of the kingdom age where there's no more thorns on roses and uh, there's no more weeds. That was part of the curse, remember? The earth was cursed. What did it bring forth? Thorns and thistles. Guess what? No more lake flies during the millennium. People live to be a thousand years old. They say, oh, what a pity. He was only a hundred years old, just a kid. And so there will be Life that's taking place during this period of time. I don't know what your plans are for your life. I know what God's plans are. He's got plans of his own, doesn't he? To set up his throne. And he says, when Israel comes back and becomes a nation again, that generation is going to watch all this happen. And so my question in closing is, you know, he told us to seek first the kingdom, right? I need Bible studies like this because I get sidetracked so easy. And I got to remember what the main thing is, gang. And the main thing is this world is not our home. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? Amen. Let's stand and close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning as we make our way through the book of Isaiah. Who is this who comes from Basra? Well, now we know. Who is this who treads a winepress by himself? Well, now we know. We see the signs, Lord. And we understand we don't know the day or the hour of the rapture. But you clearly told us that we are to know the times and the seasons. And I know, Lord, if we're just faithful to study your word, that uh, you'll connect all the dots for us and we'll be able to share from a biblical perspective what's really going on in this world. I pray for any this morning who don't know you personally. 
and I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Finally, in closing, that it wouldn't just be words that when we talk about we want to be with you above everything else, but we do pray your kingdom would come. In Jesus' name, amen.